0: 1 Chronicles chapter 17, if you guys are there, I'm going to read through the chapter as you guys follow with me and then we'll pray and we will get into it together. Now it came to pass when David was dwelling in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent, from one tabernacle to another, Wherever I have moved about with all Israel, have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to being a ruler of my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies before you, and I have made you a name like the name of great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they may, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel." I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I will tell you that the Lord will build you a house. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled that you must go be with your fathers. That I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever." I will be his father and he shall be my son. I will not take away my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house, that you have brought me this far, and yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God. For you have spoken to, of your servant's house for a great while to come, and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree. O Lord God, what more can David say to you for the honor of your servant? For you know your servant, O Lord, for your servant's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness, and make known all these great things." O oh Lord, there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make yourself a name by great and awesome deeds, by driving out nations from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, O Lord, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, let it be established forever. And do as you have said. So let it be established, and your name be magnified forever. Saying, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God, and have promised this goodness to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you have blessed it, O Lord, and it shall be blessed forever. Amen. And Father, we pray that you would... Continue to speak to us, Lord. We believe your written word is your word. And so we pray you would speak to us, that your Holy Spirit would help us understand how this applies to us. Help us, Lord, to be those who hear your word and do it. Lord, especially in a text like this, where the action really is simply that we would believe, Lord, help us to do that. To take you at your word. Father, do in our hearts what we cannot do ourselves. Please, for your glory and for our good we pray it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We don't want to forget that 1 and 2 Chronicles are one book in the Hebrew Bible. One book at the end of the Hebrew Bible as a summation of all of Israel's history. So, that one and two chronicles are really a series of sermons about Israel's history. And they were given to a group of Israelites who had been in captivity. No one had been really living in Jerusalem for a long time. They're finally freed from that captivity. They've gone back to rebuild Jerusalem. It's in shambles, and they think to themselves, is this all there is? By this time that they've gone back, probably the temple's been rebuilt, the walls are being rebuilt. But Jerusalem still is, is, is less than its former glory. In fact, what's really interesting about this is that the chronicler, the, the author of this, when he writes this out, he, he, lets certain things, he leaves certain things out that Samuel might have put in or, or the author of Kings might have put in. He leaves out the conditions of the covenant that were with David. Now, some of those things will come out later in 1 Chronicles. But but the author here leaves these out. And he does this on purpose because he is reminding this group of people who have returned from exile. He's wanting to remind them, listen, God is still working. His promise was forever. And this is really significant because at this point of Israel's history, when they're hearing this read out for the first time, there is no one on the throne of Israel, and certainly not someone from who's the descendant of David. This is important. It's important because God made a forever promise, and if He made a forever promise, and yet the the visibly we don't see the manifestation of that promise, we're left with a choice. What are we going to do? Are we going to believe what we see... Or are we going to believe what God says? And this is the choice that they had. And it's interesting because it's so applicable to us today. In fact, really, I think if there's a, a, the clearest one of the clearest gospel passages in, this, in both of these books together is right here, chapter 17. Where this points the most clearly to Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and making a covenant with us. And it all goes around David's desire to build a house for God. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about uh, how we're meant to be encouraged by by the fact that God is going to keep His promise to to build a tabernacle, to build a temple, I should say, and to make sure we have a chosen king forever. So pick it up in verse 1. It came to pass, David's dwelling in his house, that David says to Nathan, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent curtains. Now, the idea of cedar, cedar wood was incredibly expensive to mill. It's a beautiful wood when it's finished. Uh, it, it, it's aromatic. It's gorgeous. Cedar wood's gorgeous wood. And, and, and people who put cedar wood in their houses had to be incredibly wealthy. So it, wasn't, it was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of value. If, 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 if your house was being built by somebody else and they lined it with cedar, it was a way to honor you as one of the most important in that culture. So David is in this house, it's a house that uh, he's had built, it's a house that came uh, with resources from surrounding nations who wanted to honor him, and he's in this house and he can't help but think to himself, wait a second, I'm in this gorgeous house, this beautiful house, and the ark of the coming of the Lord, the place where God dwells, makes himself known, it's under a tent curtain. It's not even under the tabernacle that Moses designed, it's under a temporary tent curtain. This doesn't seem Right? And so when he brings this up to Nathan, Nathan says, you know, it seems right to me. You're, you're, you're thinking the right way, David. Do whatever is in your heart. What's going on here is David, I'm sorry, Nathan is assuming the wrong thing, as we'll see, but for the right reason. He, he was right to think the way David was thinking that, it, that God should be the most valued among us. That, that we should. Well, you know, we should make sure that he's exalted, we, way even above his chosen king. How, how does this work? That there was something off balance there. He was Nathan was right to assume that David's heart was to please the Lord. That was David's heart. But David was wrong to assume that. Or I'm sorry, Nathan was wrong to assume that David would automatically know how to please God. This is the thing that we need to think about. Because here's what, this is a mistake that we can make, and, I, and I'm now talking to you guys who are already Jesus followers. You've already put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he is God's son, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he's coming back soon. That's where your faith is. You're already a Jesus follower. Here's a mistake that we can make. We can want to have this heart to please God because God changes our hearts. That's what it means when we become a Jesus follower. The, the Spirit of God gives us new life. We are born of the Spirit, as Jesus said. And that with that new life comes new affections. We want God more than we want our sin. We want to please God more than we want to please ourselves. And so David's, in a sense, like that. He's a model of that. And here's the mistake that he made. Here's the mistake that we can make. Okay, God, I want to please you. So therefore, if I just do my best, that's what's pleasing to you. If I give you what I think is my best, that's what you're after. And that often is a mistake. It's a mistake because what that shows is a confidence in ourselves. See, I wonder if David at this point, he's, he's in Jerusalem now. He's conquered that place, kind of named it for the Lord. He's, his house is built up. He's looking around going, man, I've done really well. I've done really well. God, thank you. I, you, you help me. I, I'm here. God, I want to I give something back to you, Lord. I want to I bless you now. You've done so much for me. I want to do something back for you. That's not a bad heart. The problem is, he should have said, Lord, so what is it? <laughs> What would you have me do? And this is what we do. We want to love God. Again, I'm talking to you guys who are Jesus followers. If you're still kind of looking at this Christianity stuff, you might not be able to follow me here, but just try to understand. As a Jesus follower, you want to love the God who loves you. But here's the thing. God, I want a tent of meeting because the cloud, that's the very presence of God, had settled on it, and the glory of God filled the temple. And all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, that it they would set out. But if the, if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud, the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. In other words, listen, God gave this kind of physical manifestation to show that he was with his people and where, as we're today, where he goes, they went. Where he stayed, they stayed. That's the way it was. So here they're in Jerusalem and, and David's thinking, well, this must be where God wants us to stay. So we need to build something that shows that God is with us. And God's going, I I don't need that. God's presence isn't dependent upon what we build. Now we put a lot of effort to to, to try to make sure that our services are as helpful and edifying and... um, yeah, just just they 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 provide for you the best that you need to grow in your faith with Jesus. That's what we put a lot of work into that. I say we like a lot of us as volunteers, a lot of you as the servants of God, you volunteer in different teams, you work really hard. We do a lot to do that. And we do that not because we think, okay, in just doing that then God's going to be seen. Now we do that because we say, God, we want you to do what you want to do. And here's the funny thing, even when we don't get it right, and there are a lot of times we don't get it right, God still shows up. Amen. He still does what He wants to do. You know why? Because He's that good. That He wants to be with His people. We have to get it in our heads that God doesn't need us. We, we want to say to the Lord, Lord, you don't need me, but what would you have for me? Because our, if our desire is to try to meet a need that God has, we are looking at God, seeing God as smaller than He is. God has no needs. This is like why it's really important, even when we understand creation, how God made, why God made man. God did not make man because He was lonely. Our God is three in one. Perfect fellowship He's always had for all eternity past. He made us so that we could know Him. Anything that we have, any desire that we have even to pursue God is because God has first pursued us. And so David has to learn this lesson. He's got to learn. Listen, you know, my presence, God would say, is not dependent upon what you build for me. You know, it's funny too, because the Pharisees, remember the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they often made this mistake. They would exalt the the sort of, the structures of worship above the worship of God itself. Listen to this. In Matthew chapter 23, here's here's what happens. Jesus says to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, he says, woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, uh, he's bound by that old. But what does Jesus say? He says, you blind fools. I know it's hard for us to think Jesus would say that to somebody, but that's the way he did it. He says, you blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that the gold makes the gold sacred? Which is more important? Guys, listen. We are not a great people because there's a lot of us, or we have a great building, or we have big budgets. The only thing that would ever make us great is if we have a great God. Do you understand that? And so, David's wanting to get this, or God's wanting to get this through to David. David, listen, you have a desire, but you're desiring something that I don't really need. (laughs) In fact, here's what God does instead. God says, no, it's not you that's going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Check it out. Look at verse verse 7. So it says, Now therefore, thus says, uh, Thus you shall say to my servant David, this is what God's telling Nathan to say to David, Thus you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler of my people, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Notice, And I have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Now I love this, because Here's God promising to David what he doesn't deserve. And the first thing he's already given to David is a great name. Now we already, we know that. We, we hear David, we think king. We think great. We think a man after God's own heart. Because this is what God has made him. But we forget David was the youngest of his brothers. Which means he's the last to get an inheritance. David was the youngest of his brothers, which meant he got the rubbish jobs at home. He was the tender of the sheep, had to follow the sheep around. David would be the last brother from the family of Jesse that you would expect to get exalted. But God chose him to become the king of Israel. God exalted him. This is a, an amazing thing because when it says, I gave you a great name, in this context, it specifically means reputation. Reputation. That David had this reputation of, of somebody with whom God is with, as, as Nathan acknowledged. David had a reputation with other nations of being this great warrior, and he was. God had given this great reputation. But name is more than just reputation. It's also identity. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but in that in this culture, in biblical culture, no one ever named themselves. No one ever chose their own identity. Now, this is the thing that's happening in our culture. It's not just a new thing. It's been happening uh, in Western culture increasingly for the last several hundred years. But where we think we decide who we are. But that's actually not true. It's not true culturally, even though we try to push that. It's not true biblically. We are the sum total of of our experiences, our parents' experiences, our environment. We are a product of something other than just ourselves. Yes, we have choices to make, and that does form part of our identity, but our identity is something that we don't just grab on and decide for ourselves. Identity is something given to us. Now, this is kind of scary because some of us were given an identity that's not that great. I was given the identity of a son born of an alcoholic. I was given the identity of the, the littlest brother by four years. My three older brother are all really close in age. I'm four years younger than them. I got beat up a lot growing up. <laughs> I was given the, the identity you know, of, of being poor by American standards. I was given the identity of having a, a mother, at least back then, that all she could do was be critical of me. So I took on the identity that was given to me and it wasn't that great. Now, you might have been given an identity of a loving family. Parents who were committed and gracious and gifted. Because we do inherit our parents' gift. Sorry, kids. (laughs) And you might go, well, I like the name I already have. But you still need to know that name was given to you. So when God says to David, I have made you, given you a great name, it's not just that he's given him a good Reputation, but a new identity. He's no longer David the red-faced shepherd boy. He's David the warrior, king, and poet. He's David the man after God's own heart. That's the identity game. See, I don't know if you struggle with identity, and I, I say look, for the ladies specifically, if you're wrestling with identity, how you are, what you look like, all this kinds of stuff, I really encourage you to go through the equip. In two weeks' time, it's going to be a great thing. But man or woman, if you're struggling with identity, you wonder, I don't like my identity, or I want this to be my identity, you need to know something. You can't just choose whatever identity you want. You're going to be frustrated. You need someone else to give you an identity. And here's great news for you Jesus gives us a new identity. Yeah. Chosen. See, what God does for David, God's done for us in Christ listen to this promise that we have that Jesus speaks the resurrected Christ the glorified Christ speaks to the church in Revelation chapter 2 listen to this Jesus says if anyone with ears anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches to anyone who is victorious we're victorious by faith by the way the scripture tells us anyone who is victorious I will give some of the manna which has been hidden away in heaven. In other words, you're going to receive a feeding, a nourishment from heaven. God's going to sustain you. He says, I will give to each one, listen, a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Have you ever been given a nickname by a group of friends? When I was in... uh, junior high, I, I'm trying to think of what that would be here, I guess that would be secondary school, so about 13, 14, is that secondary school? I think so, yeah. So, so in case you haven't noticed, my ears are a little bit big, and so the nickname my friends be, or tried to give me at first was 747, like the airplane. Uh-huh. So you can imagine I got a lot of fights over that one. So after enough fights and enough frustration, they stopped calling me 747, and then I got a new nickname, Brownie which are those little girls that sell cookies. I don't know if you know what brownies are. But my last name is Brown, so I thought, well, I can at least tell myself it's a good nickname. And that was my label. All through high school, that's when you go through, you're 18 years old in the state school, I was Brownie. Even to this day, if I see one of these guys, you know, I'm 50 years old, they'll go, what's up, Brownie? (laughs) They gave me a name. a name that I'm not necessarily that happy about. But when I... Came to Christ when when Jesus, when the Holy Spirit showed me that I needed Jesus and that I could trust Jesus and Jesus began to change me, I got a new name. I'm a, the son, of, I'm a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And one day when I see him face to face, I'm gonna get even a newer name. And none of you are gonna know it. Just me and Jesus. An identity. A perfect identity is our hope in Christ. David got a taste of that, a foretaste of that. God gives him a great name. But also, here's a promise that he makes to David. For him and all of God's people, he promised them a place of their own. Look at verse 9. Moreover, he says, I will appoint, God says through Nathan to David, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them. They'll be Stuck in, rooted in, and they may dwell. That they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. If you've been one of those kind of people that moves from house to house a lot, you know you long for permanence. God's promising them permanence. He says, "No more shall the sons of wickedness oppress them." As previously, he says, verse 10, Since that time I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, he says, I will also subdue all the enemies. Furthermore, he says, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. He says, I'm going to give you a permanent place. These guys, Israelites, have been waiting hundreds of years to finally be settled in the promised land, to have a capital. Now, we may have mentioned this earlier in Chronicles, that Jerusalem is actually built up on a hill. It's actually on a rocky hill. It's a very good place to defend from. It's a very safe place to have a capital city. So in a very real sense, they would have been able to finally see God's going to keep us here. We're finally going to be in that safe, permanent place. But here's the, here's the amazing thing. The promise to build a house there, a place where God would permanently dwell, is a promise of not just the safety from the place, but safety from the person. The person of God. Listen to this. The psalmist says this. In Psalm chapter 62, I think it is. Um, where is it? Where did I put it? 62.7. Yeah, there it is. Where, where it says, my victor and honor will come from God alone. This is what the psalmist says. My victory and honor will come from God alone. He is my refuge. A rock where no enemy can reach me. You see, here's the New Testament application of this. The Israelites were placed permanently in Jerusalem. That was their safe place. God was with them. We are placed permanently in Christ. He is our rock. That's where our safety comes from. God promises and gave him what he doesn't deserve. A safe place, a permanent place. And here's the, the last thing that, that God promises David, and this is the amazing thing, what we call an unconditional covenant. Now, the word covenant isn't used here, but you know covenant is simply, uh, it's an agreement or a contract that's been drawn up out of love. It's a contract of love. And it's, in this case, it's unconditional. Notice in verses 10 through, uh, in verses 10 through 14, how many times he said, God says, I will. Notice verse 10, I will subdue all your enemies. Verse 11, I will set up a seat after you. Verse 11 again, I will establish his kingdom. Verse 12, I will establish his throne. Verse 13, I will be his father. Verse 13 again, I will not take his mercy away from him. Verse 14, I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom. Over and over again, God says, here's what I'm going to do without a single condition. God just says, I'm going to do this for you. And all David needs to do is believe. Because God's already said, I'm committed to this. It's amazing. People sometimes try to create this false dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, the, the New Testament oh, he's so nice. The God of the Old Testament, he's a grumpy old man. But this is the God of the Old Testament who is the same God of the New Testament. and It's a God who loves his people enough to make an unconditional covenant. I am committing myself to you. Now, there's three key things I want to show you about this commitment before we, we finish up, before we move on to the last bit. Three things, okay? So they should be on your screen. The first thing is this, the first promise that he's promising is an eternal dynasty. That is, God is promising David a king that cannot be removed from his throne. Notice that it says, where is it? I lost my place, sorry. I have glasses, they need to be thicker, I think. Uh, He he says, um, I will set up your seat after, he says, I will establish him a kingdom. There it is, I will establish his throne forever, in verse 12. An eternal dynasty. His throne forever. Now here's the amazing thing. The scripture says this. Listen. The scripture says if we died with Christ. In other words, we recognize that when Christ died, we died with him. The Bible says we will also live with him. And if we endure, that is, we know that we're going to endure suffering because he endured suffering. We will also reign with him. Whoa. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. But he says to us, his people, that when he comes back to reign this earth, we're going to reign with him. Don't get a power thing in your head right now but this is about basically being exalted to a high position an eternal high position, why? because Jesus will forever be on the throne don't forget, Jesus is the son of David Jesus is the, the descendant of David who fulfills all these promises not just an eternal destiny, but listen to this uh, an eternal sonship he says, listen speaking of, of not just Solomon but of the descendants of David he says uh, verse thirteen, I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take away my mercy, I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before. Who was the king before David? Saul was the throne removed from Saul? Yes, it was, because he failed. The people who are reading this right now, the people who would have heard this for the first time, one of chronicles, would have known that david's all David's descendants failed. We're going to read about that as we move on. And yet God made an unconditional promise. Because there would finally be a descendant of David who would never fail. His name is Jesus. And because he didn't fail, he always did what the Father wanted him to do. We have been gifted with that righteousness, which means we are now, listen, eternal sons and daughters. Therefore, the Scripture says, listen to this, Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, core heirs of Christ, if, indeed, we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. This is what we have in Christ. What a great promise that God's making to David that we are experiencing the blessing of. And lastly, listen, not just eternal sonship, not just an eternal destiny, but God promises to David and his descendants eternal love. A position that cannot be lost. See, the scripture says later on in in Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor things, that the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord. The promise that God made to David about his descendants is fulfilled in Jesus, and when we're in Jesus, it's ours. Amen. This is the hope that we have. It's a hope that's bigger than religion. It's a hope that's bigger than anything else you might try to pursue. This is the house that God builds. Not one we build for ourselves. God, we're we're doing our best. We're building a house. Please come be with us. No, the house that God builds himself, that he allows us to dwell in forever. This is what we have in Christ. This is the promise that God made to David. So how does David respond here he's desired what God doesn't need, and he had to be corrected in that. But then God, in his grace, promises what David doesn't deserve. He doesn't say, David, you're wrong. He just says, you know what, David, forget it. I'm going to do this for you. So how does David respond? He responds the way we need to respond. He responds in believing prayer. Verse 16, check it out. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. Now, this is important. Where did he go in? To the tent. He goes to the place that the Ark of the Lord of the uh, uh of the, I'm sorry, the Ark of the Lord of the Covenant is. He goes to that tent. This is the place that David said, you know, it's kind of shabby. It's not good enough for my God. But then what does he realize when God speaks to him through Nathan? You know what? It might look shabby, but God is there. So I'm going to go where God is. So he goes where God is, he sits before the Lord, and he says, Who am I, O oh Lord? And what is my house? That you have brought me this far, and yet was a small, it's a small thing in your sight, easy for you to do, God. And you have also spoken to, to, of your servant's house for a great while to come, he says, and have regarded me, notice the way David says this, you have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree. He didn't say, you made me a, rank, uh, you made me a man of high degree. He says, you have accorded me as if I was a man of a rank of high degree. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're viewing me in a position I don't deserve. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's to recognize that through Christ you have a position that you don't deserve. That you will never deserve. That you cannot earn. And then as you continue in faith, it cannot be taken away. This is what he's praying. He's he's recognizing, in fact, it's interesting, what does David call himself over and over again? Notice, verse 17, David speaks of himself as your servant, God. Verse 18, he says it twice, your servant, your servant. Verse 19, he says it again, your servant, according to your heart. Over and over again, David refers to him as your servant. Lord, you've put me in a position I don't deserve, and I acknowledge that I'm in this great position, but I'm just here as your servant. Hey, this is is how you know that God's done a work in your heart. When you recognize, man, Jesus has exalted me to a place I don't deserve, and because I'm sure of that, I just want to serve him in, in return. I just want to say, Lord, you're worthy of my whole life. Do you know why we're called Servants Church? You know why the apostrophe is before the S? Because Jesus came as a servant. The Holy One of God came as a servant, and he served his Father to bring his Father glory and to bring us into his family. That's what he's done. And he calls us to follow suit. Lord, I'm not worthy to be called your child. You call me your child though and I accept that position and I want to serve you as an obedient child. Just the way Jesus did. David responds with only God deserves. God deserves to be served as our master. God deserves to be believed that he's actually put us in this high position. I I think I would be crushed if one of my kids said to me, you're not my dad, or I know you don't want me as your child. I I don't know if I could handle that. Because what's most important to me in my relationship with my children is that they know that they're my children. Actually, it's the second most important. I want them to know that they're God's children. (laughs) But personally, relationally, I want them to know that they're mine, they're mine no matter what. I love them no matter what. Is God not worthy of our trust when He says, you're my son or daughter because you put your faith in Jesus? Is He not worthy of that trust? And if He's worthy of that trust, is not the right response that we would serve Him? Let us know else David prays. Verse 20. Oh Lord, David prays, there's none like you, nor is there any God beside you. Hey, there's lots of gods that people worship, but they're all false gods. He says in verse 21, And who is like your people? Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people. And he says later on, doesn't he, in verse 21, uh, Your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. Now this is really important. Because he's worshiping God, that God is uniquely worthy to be praised And he's uniquely worthy to be praised because he's delivered all his people. Do you notice how this works? David starts by recognizing, I'm in this exalted position. But when he comes to worship, he says, I'm just one of your people. There's something special, or there should be something very special about when we come together to worship God. We should see ourselves, if we are believers in Jesus, as God's people, worshiping to Him on a a level. Do you guys do realize that this up here, these guys up here, are not the worship team? We are the worship team. You're not the audience. God is the audience. (laughs) And we're coming together as his redeemed people. In the same way that God delivered Israel out of Egypt and slavery, God's delivered us out of slavery to sin. He's forgiven us and he's freeing us from sin because he loves us and he's chosen us. You know why God chose Israel? It wasn't because they were great. Because when Israel didn't even exist, God chose them in Abram. When Abram was married to Sarah and they had no children, there was no hope for an ancestry through them. But he supernaturally gives them a child. From that child comes becomes more children. Eventually comes the entire nation of Israel. He took a, a, a people that could not produce a nation and supernaturally produced a nation through them. And then when they went into slavery, he grew them through that trial and then pulled them out 400 years later that so they numbered in the millions. He redeemed them out of that and now he's put them in their promised land in this part of history in 1 Chronicles. And he said, I have chosen you. You're my redeemed people. And David says, Lord, I worship you as just one of your redeemed people. I worship you at the same level they are. Hey, listen, you might be tempted to think that you're better than someone else in this church. But let me tell you something. Your value is only in the fact that God has chosen you and redeemed them for yourself. You see, this is the thing we have to understand, okay? God's people are unique only because their God is unique. We're not so great because we're clever, or we were smart enough to know that we should believe in Jesus. Or we're we're so willing, or we were willing to believe in Jesus. Or we're so faithful, we're the ones who do always what Jesus wants us to do. None of those things are true. Hmm. The Lord started this work in us. Listen to this. Peter says this about us, the church. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, and here's what he wants us to do. Here's how that specialness shows. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light, (coughs) who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy do you see yourself that way because what God is promising David has been fulfilled through Jesus it is for us are you part of the redeemed people of God because there's no better people to be among not because the people are so great we all know each other we're not so great but because the God is so great Lastly, in verse 23 to 27, David continues his prayer. and What does he say? And now, O God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning your house, let it be established forever and do as you have said. So let it be established that your name might be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God. And let your house, the house of your servant David, be established forever. This is what David's praying. For you, God, he is why he prays this, have revealed to your servant that you will build him a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray before you. And now, Lord, you are God and have promised this goodness to your servant. Do you see what David's doing? David is praying, he's seeking God according to God's promises. Now, a lot of you guys know what I mean when I talk about the prosperity gospel. Some of you guys don't know what I mean. And if you don't know what I mean, you're so blessed, probably. <laughs> the prosperity gospel is a false gospel that teaches that when we, uh, when we have enough faith and we believe that our words have power, we actually change reality. God gives us power to change reality by our words. So we claim something in the name of Jesus and there's power to get what we want. That's a false gospel. But because it's a false gospel, people recognize it's a false gospel, we tend to not do what God does tell us to do, which is to claim His promise. That's a big difference. If you come up with your own promise, your own plan, and say, I claim this in Jesus' name, that ain't doing nothing. There's no power in that, and if you think there's power in that, your faith is in the wrong direction. You're believing a false gospel. But when God says something about us, or something about His plan for us, He calls us to believe that. To claim that, to pray accordingly. Guys, listen. You need to let God's word direct your prayers. In fact, can I, can I give some real practical advice? First of all, I really encourage you guys all to be involved in some sort of corporate prayer. As many opportunities for corporate prayer as you can get. It, it, with your family. Um, you know, at, at, at a house group. At a woman's group. At a men's group. With some, just some mates that you get together with. Coming to a prayer meeting that we have on maybe on Friday morning or Sunday morning. Get involved in corporate prayer and when you do, have your Bible open and pray what God tells us. Why? Because God wants to do what He says. Because God's going to do what He says and what prayer does is not us getting God to do our will, it's us getting aligned with God's will. That's what happens when we pray. David, Thinks, God, I want to do something good for you. And God goes, you know, David, you got this all wrong. It's me who's gonna do something good for you. And when David hears that, he takes God out of his word and he prays it in. Pray it in. You're not creating reality, you're believing reality, you're believing what God says. We often say, or people often say, prayer changes things. And I know what they mean by that. I don't want to be critical of that. But here's the truth it's not that prayer changes things, it's that God changes things, and He changes us as we pray. James says, We have not because we ask not. Here's the whole of the matter what we're seeing. When the author writes this, he wants to encourage the people that are feeling a bit defeated, feeling like, well, okay, God made these promises to David, but there's not necessarily visible evidence. But we are back, and the temple is being rebuilt. I guess God says, I'm not sure. And the authors want to say, no, no, no. What did God promise his chosen king? He's going to fulfill it. How much more we, this side of the cross, this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven, this side of that, how much more we should say, God, you have done, you are doing what you promised. We want to pray accordingly and we want to be changed accordingly. Amen? The house that God wants to build is us. It's us. Let's ask him to do that right now. Father, because you've spoken this word, because your word has shown us that you have fulfilled all your promises to David through the son of David, Jesus Christ, we want to pray accordingly. Lord, we want to confess our sins, Lord. We don't want to act like we're not sinners. We don't want to act like we don't sin anymore. We want to confess our sins, Lord, because you've promised if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Lord, we do that right now as individuals. Lord, we say, you know our sin, Lord. We, we want to, in our heads, verbalize this to you and say, Lord, here's our sin. Please forgive us. Not because we deserve it, but because of the work of Jesus. And corporately as a church, Lord, we confess. We are a unit, Lord. You are, we are a family. And we confess our prayerlessness. Corporately, we, we just don't pray like we should. We confess that, Lord. We confess how little we can, can believe. We confess, Lord, how... We thank you, Lord, for the love you're producing in us, but we could love so much more. We confess that and say, Lord, change us. Lord, we confess what your word says. We believe, Lord, that you who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we believe that, Lord. We confess you are doing a work that you will complete. And we say thank you for that. And Lord, we we confess that you're coming back soon. We have no idea about the time. Nobody does. But Lord, we know you're coming back soon. And we confess, Lord, that for us, like like Paul, to live is you, to live is you, Lord Jesus, and to die is gain. And so, Lord, we confess, Lord. We say, as we sang earlier, send us, Lord, Lord, this great news, this great hope that we have in Jesus, send us out to our neighbors, our coworkers, our families. Because we believe, Lord, that you've said, go and make disciples, and if you've commanded it, it's going to happen. And you've said you'll never leave us nor forsake us, so we believe you're with us as we do this. Here we are, Lord. We're the house. Build us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.